Hello and welcome to the Brain Health Podcast, your home for everything brain health. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Albert Garcia Ramu. He works at Johns Hopkins Medical Center, has a wide range of research interests that we'll get into briefly, but some of which include psychedelics being used as a treatment and a way to prevent and curb addiction. Um, also, we have Samuel Nydorf, who is a undergraduate student research assistant at Skidmore College, and Austin Asa, who is also an undergraduate research assistant at Miami University. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll start off by asking some questions to Dr. Garcia Ramu, and and throughout the talk, um, Sam and Austin will ask some questions too. Um, kind of the first one for you, uh, Dr. Garcia Ramu, is how did you get started and kind of go down this path into research in this field? Yeah, and you can call me Al. I've been interested uh, in kind of uh, the intersection of different ways of studying the mind and consciousness since I was an undergraduate. Um, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans back uh, when I got out of high school in 1999. And they had a great program there focusing on, you know, your real traditional Western models of psychology and neuroscience. So I studied abnormal psychology and um, cognitive neuroscience and behavioral neuroendocrinology. And, um, you know, got a very good focus on what uh, we talk about in psychology and the way that we study the brain and the mind uh, from that standpoint. Um, but I was also real lucky to have uh, some wonderful uh, teachers and opportunities to study philosophy of mind, um, understanding things that are more on the epistemological side, um, looking at the underpinnings of what we think of as consciousness, as well as you know some more uh, liberal arts types of uh, studying and particularly being exposed to Eastern uh, spiritual traditions, studying uh, world religions um, and uh, contemplative practices like meditation. And, you know, all of those different uh, fields seem to think about and talk about the mind, uh, but, you know, coming at it from a very different angle. And so that was kind of when I first started to think about this uh, seriously and, um, Definitely my experience doing meditation practice, I think was, was very, uh, you know, formative for me when I was getting into that, uh, my early twenties and, and just, uh, get, you know, reaching out into adulthood, early adulthood and living on my own. Um, similarly, I, uh, spent some time, uh, during my undergraduate career where I was working in the U S forest service. And I was, uh, again, at that time trying to adventure a little bit and, you know, do something outside the box. Uh, whereas I had always lived in big cities like Miami or New Orleans where I grew up. Um, I eventually you know, made it out to Montana and I was working with uh, a buddy of mine uh, and we basically just lived in the woods for several months. We were you know, chopping down trees and um, you know, living in the wild uh, with you know, very little contact with the normal kind of day-to-day uh, -day, you know, urban life. And um, that opened up some really big experiences for me as well, just being in nature, uh, in the mountains, in the woods, um, that kind of you know, were very compelling. Um, and they brought me back to some of the psychology studies I had done, looking at uh, stuff like Abe Maslow and uh, talking about peak experiences. And you know that was something that continued to 
kind of churn in the back of my mind for, for many years. While uh, after undergraduate, I went home, and uh, which is South Florida and Miami, and um, did odd jobs. I was, uh, you know, working for FedEx, loading trucks and bartending and doing all sorts of different things, trying to figure out what was next. Um, and eventually I really came back to this area and, and particularly um, I found this sort of niche school called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, uh, as it was called then when I went. Um, so after about uh, four years off from school and where I was kind of uh, doing odd jobs uh, and continuing to read a lot of, of philosophy and, and um, brain science, uh, I decided to go back and study this in more depth and get a doctorate in psychology. And uh, I found this program there at ITP, um, which really seemed like a good fit. It was really trying to bring together all of those disparate uh, ways of studying the mind and, and the, looking at the person from a holistic standpoint, you know, mind, body, spirit. And that was kind of where I wanted to focus my attention. And so I went there and I spent uh, five years there, which is in Palo Alto, California, a beautiful place. Um, Stanford is there, but so is Google and Apple. And uh, um, it's a really fascinating area. Um, you know, whereas I found Miami seemed a little bit uh, antithetical to more intellectual pursuits. It was very kind of a status-driven culture down there. Um, and for that reason, I never quite felt at home. Um, in Palo Alto, it felt like a very uh, intellectually, uh, you know, encouraging place. There's a lot of uh, people who were working on different things, whether it be the tech side of the industry or, um, you know, the, these folks that I ended up working with at ITP, my, my mentors and teachers and my peers. And uh, yeah, and so I basically went in there wanting to study um, more about the mind and, and consciousness and particularly how mental health was uh, kind of related to some of these more transcendent or peak experiences that people can have. And that was where I focused my doctoral dissertation work, um, which uh, in 2012, I was presenting at a conference in Tucson called Towards the Science of Consciousness uh, and talking about you know, transcendent experiences and how they could, uh, for some people, have really positive kind of ongoing benefits. Uh, and that happened to be attended by one of the Johns Hopkins researchers at the time, Dr. Catherine McLean, uh, who then uh, you know, approached me and we had dinner and chatted and um, that basically led to uh, you know, me having a line into the Hopkins uh, folks who were doing this research with psilocybin. And um, you know, I got an interview um, for a postdoctoral fellowship. And then, uh, yeah, then I came here after and that was pretty much how I, how I ended up in the, in the fray. Awesome. Uh, well, Sam, you want to ask him a little bit of questions about John Hopkins Center and what, what they have going on over there? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I just want to say, uh, you know, thank you for being on here. I've been following the John Hopkins uh, Center for Psychedelic uh, Research for, you know, many years now. I'm a neuroscience major. I'm a senior. So this is really um right aligned with what I'm really um, interested in. Um, so thank you. Um, and, you know, I was wondering, you know, if you could kind of summarize the goals of the John Hopkins Center um, and maybe like describe your role there. Um, yeah, just as a you know, baseline to start talking about the center. 
Sure. Um, so actually the Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research was uh, technically kind of established in 2019 with uh, large uh, philanthrop philanthropic gifts from uh, a number of folks, including the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation, Tim Ferriss, um, and Blake Mikoski and Craig Nirenberg. Uh, and we had a ba basically this kind of conglomerate of, of people who, um, you know, contributed uh, substantial funding for us to be able to try to take this work to the next level. Uh, and, you know, that's what we're kind of in the midst of doing now, though things have been slightly derailed with, uh, you know, the pandemic over the last year, of course. Um, but kind of before that um, happened, uh, Roland Griffiths started uh, working with psilocybin and humans who had never had any psilocybin before and never had any psychedelic drug uh, experience. And that was uh, a project that started around 1999, 2000, when they were starting to get things going. So of course, back then I was still, uh, you know, just starting college and was not here or even aware that this work was going on. Um, but uh, Roland with uh, Bill Richards um, and uh, Bob Jesse and a number of other folks uh, you know, got that study underway and published those findings in 2006. And that kind of kicked off a lot of the work that came after here at Hopkins, um, really showing that, you know, these drugs could be safely administered, high dose, um, that they have these very pronounced effects that are differential, uh, differentiated from other types of drugs, like the active control that they used in that study, which was um, methylphenidate. Uh, and then um, really just that kind of snowballed into all these different projects and studies. So those were studies that were done, um, you know, healthy volunteers, so people who didn't present with any particular mental health conditions. Um, but uh, not long after, you know, it became clear that the types of experiences people were having uh, when they were, uh, uh, you know, administered high dose psilocybin with psychological support uh, were leading to these ongoing benefits, mental health benefits, you might call them, or um, or you know, improvements in well-being and life satisfaction, and so that really starts to you know underscore the question of well, if this can be you know so beneficial for people who are showing up at our door um, without any mental health conditions, you know, can we use these types of experiences and can we use these psychedelics as tools and mental health treatment to try to help people who are struggling with different conditions like. Um, existential distress and cancer patients, um, you know, cigarette smokers, uh, people who are trying to stop smoking, which is a very, very difficult thing to do and, you know, is a huge public health problem. Um, and, uh, you know, people with major depression, which we, uh, our lab has recently published some findings on that as well. So um, that's kind of been the evolution of things here since about 2000. Um, you know, I arrived on the scene in 2012 after I finished my uh, uh, my PhD, and uh, yeah, we've been kind of slowly turning these studies out and um, really looking at uh, how psilocybin administration uh, impacts mental health in these different uh, populations. And uh, now with the center, the um, real mandate there is for us to start spreading our wings a little bit more. Um, before things were kind of um, being funded by groups like the Hepta Research Institute and other nonprofit uh, organizations like River Sticks and the Council on Spiritual Practices who were able to 
um, help pay for studies um, which are quite expensive and they're time intensive and, and you know sometimes difficult to do because of the uh, you know regulatory hoops that need to be jumped through in order to work with schedule one substances um, but with the center the whole idea was that um, we would be able to fund a lot of research all at once and that includes a number of different investigators so my role in the center is I'm one of the um, faculty here and there's um, five faculty, including Roland Griffiths, who's the center director, and Matt Johnson, who's the associate director, uh, Fred Barrett, who's in charge of the near imaging in the center uh, and is an fMRI expert, uh, and myself, uh, and Dr. Natalie Gukassian, who is um, uh, one of our uh, psychiatrists and medical director for the center, uh, who's coming on this year. And so with the um, center, we've been able to kind of um, expand the work more broadly, not only to um, some of those conditions that I mentioned, like smoking and depression, um, but um, we started to look at other areas, including anorexia, um, Alzheimer's disorder, um, looking at uh, different types of substance use disorders, like opioid use disorder. Um, we'll be looking at uh, using psilocybin in people with post-traumatic stress, um, chronic Lyme disease, or what they call post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Um, so really just branching out and um, starting to look at all these other types of conditions uh, that, you know, potentially we might see benefits from using psilocybin uh, and also digging deeper into what the mechanisms are because um, some of the studies that our group and others have published, you know, they suggest that there's benefits for these substances. Um, but in terms of, you know, how that works exactly, uh, jury is still out and particularly you know as a neuroscientist in training here um, you know you're probably very well aware of all of the um, growing work on understanding the brain mechanisms of psychedelics um, looking at that both in preclinical literature so animal models uh, cellular molecular um, models where we're looking at things like uh, potential neuroplasticity inducing effects of these drugs um, and then also human neuroimaging work um, uh, you know, looking at stuff like uh, brain correlates of psychedelic state um, and how that's uh, also related to changes in things like mood and um, mental health, which um, Fred has published some great stuff on recently, and looking at the long-term changes in emotion after psilocybin. Can I ask a quick follow-up then? Mm -hmm. um, so... I guess for me, the study that I look towards that's like really putting this uh, on the forefront and maybe getting the ball rolling is the 2014 study, the pilot study in tobacco dependent uh, individuals. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little because, you know, the results were, were crazy remarkable in that, you know, 80% of subjects were abstinent in that, whereas, you know, other types of therapies were only 35%. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that and how that maybe have, you know, jump-started things a little. Yeah, that, well, I mean, actually is a great seg because um, really what happened was um, in 2008, Matt Johnson started that project and this was his brainchild. Um, and so I really didn't know very much about smoking coming in. And myself, I was a former smoker for many years, actually. Um, luckily, I quit by the time I, I showed up here. But um, really when I was interviewed in 2012 to come to the, to come work here at Hopkins, um, you know, the main kind of thrust of what I was supposed to be doing was finishing this study uh, because until that time, it was just kind of 
people working on it on the side as a, you know a sort of a back burner project but as you can imagine that made it go quite slowly when there's all these other projects that were prioritized so when i got here they said look your job is to finish the study um, five people have gone through already and we're seeing good results but we need more than five obviously to to you know, be able to publish the results. Uh, so uh, I learned as much as I could about um, tobacco smoking cessation. And you know, it is a huge problem. And so I do like to really highlight that um, it's way worse than pretty much any other drug. It kills more people than all of the other drugs combined, including alcohol, cocaine, heroin, I mean, you name it. Um, and you, know, you put them all in one pile and then you put tobacco in, in the other pile and you know, tobacco absolutely dwarfs uh, the other drugs in terms of the uh, you know, deaths both in the US and worldwide. Um, so we're talking 500,000 roughly deaths per year in, in the US uh, smoking related illness. Uh, and so anyways, you know, the study uh, really was looking at how do you um, use psychedelics in conjunction with you know, what you might consider your more standard talk therapies or counseling um, as a sort of combination treatment and if you do that with smokers, does that you know lead to any success? Um, kind of interestingly, one of the bigger waves of research early on with psychedelics was focused on using LSD for treating alcoholism. Um, they the results were kind of uh, hit or miss. Some studies showed really good results, others not not as good. And so it was sort of inconclusive as a field. This is work that was done back in you know 1960s primarily. Um, before they were all, all the psychedelics were placed in schedule one status. But, um, you know, that was a really interesting uh, era of research because that was kind of when it was just starting to get up and running and, and looking at psychedelics as mental health treatments. And, you know, another really neat study that was done here in Baltimore uh, back in those days was using um, high dose LSD treatment for uh, formerly uh, heroin dependent um, men who were coming out of uh, incarceration. And you know I, that's a great study that showed basically some, something like fourfold uh, increase in uh, abstinence rates in the LSD group versus the treatment as usual control group. So you know the idea of treating uh, using psychedelics for addiction treatment uh, had been around for years and you know Humphrey Osmond was one of the, uh, one of the guys who's working on that way back when. but um, you know, the idea of using it for smoking and uh, tobacco smoking cessation specifically, um, there was this kind of a, not an overlap, not enough of an overlap for there to, you know, be work done back in that era. You know, it was actually pretty common, um, you know, before 1970 that people would just be smoking, you know, pretty, pretty much anywhere, you know, bars and airports and your office, just like in Mad Men. Uh, and I don't think the, uh, U.S. Surgeon General came out and said, hey, these are bad for you until about 1964. And so 1970-71, you see the, um, you know, you see the Controlled Substances Act come into the, come into play and these psychedelics get outlawed pretty much. And at that point, you know, you don't see any more work for many years. So Matt's idea was, look, if psychedelics really can be useful for treating addiction, then this is a great addiction to look at. Kills kills a lot of people. It's notoriously difficult. Um, you know, even though there are FDA approved medications to help people, as you noted, they have limited efficacy. So you might see 20 to 30% of people stopping, maybe a little bit more um, 
with the regular treatments like the nicotine patch or gum or lozenges uh, or using uh, things like uh, varenicline or uh, bupropion, which are medications. And so um, the other thing you know, to consider here is when you're struggling with bad alcohol dependence or a bad opioid problem, you know, that can really wreak havoc on your normal life. So, you know, you might lose jobs, have broken relationships, and that stuff, you know, is hard, the type of thing that's really hard for a single treatment intervention to, to address. Whereas with smokers, you know, many smokers are able to hold down their day job, um, you know, have successful more or less relationships and, you know, go about their lives. And so the idea was, you know, smokers would be a very good place to test the hypothesis of whether uh, psychedelics could be helpful for addiction treatment. And so uh, that study was using a combination approach of cognitive behavioral therapy, which went over the course of about three months. And within that period, then uh, there was also uh, two to three high doses of psilocybin administered. And we started with the first dose uh, after the fifth, uh, you know, after the fifth week of treatment. So the first month we we're just doing counseling and getting ready for the quit day. Um, and then on the quit day, we administered the first um, moderately high dose of psilocybin, which was about 20 milligrams body weight adjusted for 70 kilograms. Um, and then uh, we had a couple more dosing sessions that were at two and I believe uh, eight weeks out from the first session. And those were to try to just help continue to move people along in this abstinence process. And uh, yeah, what we found was uh, that 80% of the people, there was just 15 people in the study, there was not any double blind, there's no placebo or control condition. So it's what we call open label pilot study, but it's also what we call a proof of concept study, which is, you know, the idea is maybe psilocybin can be useful in combination with regular uh, counseling for quitting smoking let's see, you know, if it, if people tolerate it well, you know, if there's any big problems that are concerning. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, we saw very good success with those 15 smokers where um, 12 of them quit, you know, right on their first session. Um, and 12 of them were still quit, uh, you know, six months after their psilocybin session. And we kept following up with people over uh, a 12 month period and we saw that still, you know, a year later, 67% were abstinent, biologically verified abstinent. Um, and on average, two and a half years later, we call people back in and ask them about that. Um, and we're still seeing that majority or 60% of the study sample was uh, abstinent. So, you know, that really warranted more investigation. Uh, and luckily we were able to um, get funding through um, the Hepta Research Institute and other groups that were um, enthusiastic about this work to then design a, a randomized control trial, uh, which we've been working on, Matt Johnson and I, with uh, Elliot Stein and John Fedota, who are or the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Um, we've been doing that since about 2015. So uh, after we published those initial findings, we um, designed the follow-up study um, we're able to acquire the funding for that, which also helped me stick around after my postdoc fellowship, which was very good for me. Um, and yeah, we've been working on that ever since. So um, it's, you know, 2021 now. Um, we're hoping to be finishing up the study this year, um, but uh, 
you know, we kind of got derailed last year. We were closed for business pretty much from March until November. Um, the things are picking back up. You can see I'm in my office again. Uh, our whole team has been vaccinated uh, and we're somewhere, you know, around five or six new uh, participants, you know, enrolled since January 1 of this year. Uh, and, you know, we're trying to churn away and get, you know, the rest of the folks in. Um, but that study is an 80-person randomized control trial, so probably a lot bigger. Um, we've already enrolled some 62 people, I think, and randomized them to either psilocybin or nicotine patch. Um, so this is, rather than a placebo-controlled trial, what would be called a comparative efficacy trial, where we take a, you know intervention that we know is FDA-approved and works for smoking cessation, in this case, the nicotine patch, uh, and the other uh, you know, group that we're testing is getting a high dose of psilocybin, a single high dose. Both groups are getting uh, a matched uh, counseling intervention that uh, you know, kind of wraps around the quit day, just like uh, what we did with our pilot study. Uh, and people are just randomly being assigned to one or the other. And then we follow them up three, six, and 12 months later and see you know, where are they at with their abstinence. Um, and for uh, some of these people, we're doing it near imaging, so fMRI, brain scanning, before, during, and after the quit day. Um, and that's through the National Institute on Drug Abuse Intramural Research Program, which is next door, um, who have graciously offered us the use of their laboratory facilities and their um, MRI scanner and techs and all that stuff. So yeah, we're getting close to finishing that one. Um, it's been, you know, a much bigger project than the last one. So it's, you know, it took some time and we've done it with a relatively small contingent of people. I mean, uh, I've done pretty much all of this. I've done all of the psilocybin sessions for a study. I've done all of the counseling for all the participants, uh, all the screening for all the participants. So it's been, you know, my main focus for the last five years roughly. Um, but, you know, we've gotten a lot done and we're excited, um, you know, the findings so far, the preliminary data look great. You know, we're seeing in about half of the sample who've made it through the 12 month follow-up that um, you're getting good kind of uh, success that overall is better in the psilocybin group than the patch group. And you kind of see a decline in the success rates in the patch group um, from the three to six to 12 months follow-up. But the, the psilocybin group stays pretty stable where you're getting uh, over half of those people abstinent out to the six and 12 month follow-up and not the same kind of uh, success in the patch group. That actually leads me to a question. Um, I wondered with results like that, do you think that um, in the future it will be likely that those will be, that the go-to methods will be therapy mixed with psychedelics rather than the other like chemicals that we uh, give like nicotine patches or for instance, with anxiety and depression, um, anxiety medications and depression, antidepressants can have a lot of uh, consequences and um, you know, they, they aren't necessarily the best for your health with side effects. So I was wondering if you think that, psil that psilocybin potentially um, could replace those or in most cases replace them in the future. So my guess would be this is never going to be a first line treatment. Um, so usually the first line treatment is they kind of start you with what they think will work and is the easiest. And so kind of a low bar for entry, for instance, would be something like for quitting smoking, we'll be starting on patches. Reason being that there's very low risk involved, you know, and also as a result, you can get it pretty much anywhere. Go to the corner store, the Walgreens or wherever, um, you pick up your cigarettes and you can also instead buy patches 
Uh, you don't need a doctor's orders and they're pretty simple to follow. You know, you just put one on every day, like a Band-Aid and um, you stop, you know, on a quit day and then you work your way down the dosing ladder until you're off. Um, and so because that takes minimal intervention and um, is relatively safe, you know, the, I think those types of things will remain first line treatments. Um, same with medications. I think they're going to stay um, pretty commonly kind of prescribed as something that will, you know, your doctor is going to give you if you come in complaining about an anxiety or a depressed mood problem. Um, however, for people who, you know, struggle after getting, you know, a few medications and are not able to, you know, get the goals that they're wanting, um, at that point, that's when you do need to explore other options. And uh, so for, you know, something like smoking cessation, um, you know, addiction treatments in general, or for depression, then you might move to one of these more um, labor-intensive, time-intensive, second-line treatments. Because um, if you can just take a pill and you don't have bad side effects, um, then that's quicker and easier than having to go through all this counseling and do these high-dose sessions, which do involve some risk. Um, and, you know, so then, you know, those people can be taken care of with their first-line treatments and the people who still need more help, you know, would then hopefully be able to access, um, you know, medical psilocybin as a treatment option then for whatever, you know, whatever that might be, mood disorders or something like that. I see. Thank you. So you imagine the future where it will be more used for people, for instance, who have been smokers for years and have had no success with other methods. And so they'll try psychedelics as an intervention rather than being a, a first line or anything like that. Yes. And, uh, you know, a really good example of that is um, uh, in 2019, FDA approved Sprobato, which is uh, S-ketamine. Um, it's basically a ketamine-based molecule that's uh, been put into a little um, intranasal formulation, little spray bottle. Um, and because it does have some dissociative types of effects, um, the way that S-ketamine is administered is uh, you have to go to a particular place that's approved to administer it then you have to take it there and stay there for at least two hours. There's gonna be personnel there who are monitoring you and looking for symptoms like blood pressure, uh, or, you know, spikes or you know, changes in consciousness, which are pretty common um, when people are being dosed. And then once the, those acute symptoms subside, uh, people are then generally let go into the, you know, into the real world and go back to their lives. And um, you know, in order to get your insurance to approve Spravato for de depression, then you have to have some documentation that you've tried a couple of these other standard pharmacotherapies. They have not been successful. And then they say, okay, we'll, we'll let you try this because as you said, you know, um, it's more time intensive, it requires more medical supervision, um, somewhat riskier, and, and you know, therefore it's not considered a first line. I see. Now what, um if I could ask a follow-up question, what sort of environment do they have them in, for instance, in the ketamine trials or in your psilocybin studies um, that you've been leading when the person is under the effects? Is it like a typical laboratory environment or are they in more of a relaxed environment? So with asketamine, there's not really much of a standard of care yet. Um, mm. You know, as I understand it, you know, they could just kind of stick you in a hospital room with an easy chair and they'll have somebody, you know, watching you to make sure you don't, um, you know, get up and, you know, stumble out into traffic or something. Uh, and so in terms of what the setting is, 
it's kind of uh, up to the providers, you know, to come up with that. And uh, I haven't uh, seen too much literature about it, um, though we are working on a new trial now to test that out and see what set and setting kind of adds to the mix for esketamine treatment. Wow. Um, but for our psilocybin sessions, um, you know, this has been something that goes back to that earlier era of research in the 1960s, where they talked about um, set and setting as being, you know, big uh, influencers of drug effects. And specifically the set being, you know, the person's mindset coming into treatment and the setting being the environment in which it's administered. And, you know, for that type of work with high dose psychedelic administration, um, you know, the early work and, you know, more of the contemporary work as well has suggested that being in a comfortable environment that's aesthetically pleasing, uh, as opposed to something like a hospital room with fluorescent lighting or in an MRI scanner, you know, tends to have better outcomes. And so all of our session rooms here, we just had a nice renovation and now have four rooms so we can run four sessions at the same time. Um, they're all outfitted like a therapist's office. It's like a more living room like, and uh, you know, have a nice couch, a couple of uh, chairs for the monitors or the people who are sitting and watching sessions. Um, and usually people are laying down on the couch for most of the drug effects um, so that they don't you know, stand up and get wobbly. Um, they usually have their eyes covered and uh, have headphones on or listening to headphones. Um, and an interesting paper I was just watch, uh, reading this morning actually uh, from the group at Imperial College London was showing that um, when you uh, get this change in brain dynamics and brain activity, um, they're looking at just eyes closed versus eyes open listening to music versus eyes open um, looking at a video. And they're actually seeing that with eyes closed, you're getting um, more of this uh, change in the functional connectivity of the brain um, than when you're watching the video. And the idea is that perhaps when people are engaged with something like a video, it might keep them more in their sort of normal state of consciousness. Whereas when their eyes are closed and they're able to kind of get more absorbed in the experience. Um, so that's why we've been using this type of almost sensory deprivation type setting with the eyes closed and laying on the couch um, and very minimal interaction. So, you know, the focus is not on um, having a conversation with the, the sitters or anything like that, but, um, you know, really kind of going inside and seeing what's going on and internally in the experience. I would hope that, and that makes me really happy to hear, because when you described the ketamine administration, it sounded very like it would be very alien almost to be in a hospital setting with the, you know, the lighting or maybe a very uncomfortable seat and doctors everywhere and lab coats and stuff. I feel like that wouldn't be very conducive to a positive experience. Whereas uh, in the way you describe it, the psilocybin studies, it seems like it's more relaxed and they could be more capable of being comfortable. And I feel like that would be more conducive to just a positive experience, psychologically speaking. Yeah, and we're trying to test that out now at um, uh, you know, one of the Hopkins S. ketamine clinics. We're trying to randomly assign people to either get uh, counseling in kind of a nicer environment with their S. ketamine or just give it to them the way that the manufacturers say, you know, put them in an easy chair, give them the spray, make sure they don't get it, you know, take off pretty much. And, you know, see if you get better antidepressant effects, um, which I hypothesize that we will. So I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit. So 
what do you think is causing this positive benefit? So like, what, what do you think like deep down are like the fundamental mechanisms or if, if, it, if not at a kind of a biological uh, neurological level instead at like a social or personal or maybe interpersonal level, um, what's going on that, that's making this effective? You know, we can't say for sure. Um, there's been lots of uh, proposed mechanisms and we're studying and learning more day, you know, day by day. Like I said, I was literally just reading a new paper that you know, came out this morning um, before we got on today. Um, so it's, it's exciting because we're still learning so much um, now. Um, but there's a few things that we've found on the biological side of the fence that seem to be very good, uh, you know, kind of candidates for some of the mechanisms that we're seeing. Um, those include changes in brain uh, connectivity and functional connectivity, pretty much the way that the different brain areas are um, synchronizing with one another and communicating. Um, so that's one thing that uh, is kind of looking at kind of the bigger picture. So this whole organ up here. Um, and when you zoom in uh, more on the um, smaller kind of cellular and molecular uh, scale in the brain and the neurons, um, you're seeing the potential for neurogenesis. So the, you know, birth of new neurons in the brain. Um, and, uh, you, you know, that's from animal models, not human models, but still, you know, if you see that type of uh, thing going on in mice, it does make you wonder what's happening in humans. Um, and also, uh, well, neuroplasticity uh, in uh, administration of these drugs, particularly in forming new uh, synapses or connections uh, and branching projections like dendrites and axons, I'm sorry, dendrites uh, and, and synapses between the neurons. And so that's the type of thing that can atrophy when there's certain types of mental health conditions like depression or, um, or can become, uh, you know, those connections can kind of become fewer and farther between. Um, and if you can strengthen or grow or build more of those connections, I mean, that's what you see in a typical kind of uh, curve of learning, for instance, uh, somebody who's learning a new skill or something, they'll, um, they'll kind of um, wire together their neurons in a way. Um, and when you get uh, successful antidepressant treatments, you also see more of these um, connections being formed in certain key regions like the prefrontal cortex, for instance. Um, so those are some of the biological mechanisms that are of interest. And there's you know, been more interest in that neuroplasticity inducing effect recently, and we're learning more about that. Um, great study also from, the group, uh, from a group who's working in Denmark right now um, looking at uh, serotonin to a receptor density and binding and how that influences psychedelic effects and lasting effects and how that works, studying not just humans and using positron emission tomography, but also studying animals. Um, really cool study that um, they just published with pigs um, where they can see pretty much um, that a day and seven days after these pigs got administered psilocybin, um, they're seeing these proteins um, in the brain areas that um, would suggest they're growing these new connections. And, and so when you see that there and you see that at the cellular level as well, um, you know, that, that really speaks to an exciting uh, possibility that this could create focused connections in the areas we want to, and that might be leading to the benefits we're seeing, and also to some of the, what, you know, people might call behavioral plasticity or changes in behaviors like quitting smoking or something like that. Um, Chuck Nichols is at Louisiana State University. He's done some really neat work as well, looking at 
uh, anti-inflammatory properties of psychedelics. And this is another potential biological mechanism that could factor into some of the mental health benefits. Inflammation is known to be related to all sorts of different uh, pathologies, including mental health uh, problems uh, like depression. And so if you can reduce some of that inflammation and uh, some of those uh, cytokines, and that could also biologically lead to some of these um, positive effects, or at least go along with some of these positive effects. Um, and, you know, I'm not a brain scientist, but um, as I mentioned before, you know, my interest has been really psychologically the mechanisms that lead people to change um, how they live their lives, how they behave, their attitudes. Uh, and those types of peak or transcendent or what we also sometimes call mystical experiences seem to be real big existential experiences for people that can kind of help them change their narrative around their self-identity. Who am I? What am I? You know, what is my place in the world? Um, and so I think that's been a big one that, um, you know, our group at Hopkins has been focusing on. And, um, you know, me personally, I've been looking at because... Uh, when people have these kind of big earth-shaking experiences, which they can sometimes have with psychedelics, sometimes with other, you know, means they can also be induced. Um, and, you know, that can have these kind of persisting ramifications for, you know, how they see things, how they see themselves, how they see the world, and um, how they then kind of go on to engage with the world. Uh, I mean, those are such good mechanisms all the way across the board from uh, kind of the deepest level down, down to like the actual neurons all the way up. And that yeah, leads me to ask a couple of follow-up questions um, with the biological mechanisms. I mean, I understand like you're not a brain scientist first, but it just kind of ma made me wonder. So when, when you're talking about connections, like are, are you, are you speaking about like specific white matter pathways or, or are you talking about uh, like patterns of activities such, such as like the default mode network and task positive network um what were you referring to there so that so that um you know really speaks to two different mechanisms that i mentioned um one it was kind of the first in, in terms of brain functional connectivity and so that those types of brain dynamics within networks like the default mode network and task positive network um you know, that is uh, big bundles of cells that are talking and communicating and sending neural and electrical uh, signals back and forth. Um, and those patterns are definitely changed when you give people psychedelics. And those changes are correlated with um, subjective changes in the sense of self. And so, you know, those types of connections and, and different connectivity patterns that we see dynamically across the whole brain you know, have, have become kind of a main focal area of research. Um, but again, at the smaller level, the types of connections that you're seeing are literally those synapses uh, and branches forming between the cells. And that can also change the sort of circuit level dynamics and the way that um, the, those parts of the brain are communicating with their next door neighbors. Uh, and so you can see kind of you know, acutely like this, this uh, um, change in brain dynamics and communication across regions. And then within regions, you're seeing changes that are happening, you know, rapidly after the drug administration. Um, but, you know, like I mentioned with the study in the, in the pigs, you actually see those um, changes in connectivity um, in terms of the structural connectivity, not the functional connectivity um, that are lasting, uh, you know, persisting after the drug is long gone. 
And so it's just, it's like literally created these kind of new pathways uh, in terms of the way that the brain, the neurons are connected and communicating. And so that's fascinating. And, um, you know, it's still something that we're starting to unpack more as you see the field uh, growing now. Awesome, yeah, thank you. Um, when you're talking about these uh, biological mechanisms, it makes me think of, um, you know, microdosing. And um, I think there's a lot in the public eye about it recently. You mentioned Tim Ferriss um, as a donor for the Psychedelic Center. And I actually listened to his podcast pretty recently on psychedelics. And this woman, Ayelet Waldman, who wrote a book, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. Um, and she talked about how, you know, microdosing LSD completely shifted her mood and brought her out of this deep depressive episode that she was experiencing. So I'm wondering what you think the, you know, potential efficacy of microdosing could be, because it seems like these biological mechanisms of neuroplasticity could still be going on from these small doses, but you're not getting these mystical experiences that you're, um, you know, having with these larger doses. Great question. Um, right now, I would say it's too soon to say um, because there's been, I think, two maybe uh, controlled studies of microdosing uh, in the literature. And the ones that have been conducted have found pretty much nothing that would suggest any therapeutic benefit of microdosing. Um, however, uh, you know, there is a possibility that with chronic microdosing, you might get some, you know, ongoing, you might get some benefits. Um, and there have been even, you know, with microdoses of LSD, uh, changes in brain functional connectivity that have been seen. Um, so that does kind of point to a potential mechanism um, for that, uh, you know, microdosing to have some of these benefits. Um, but I think the other big elephant in the room when you talk about microdosing, um, and actually there's a few, but the main one is this sort of placebo effect. Um, and so if people think this is going to help them feel better and make them perform better at work or have better mood, it's pretty incredible what the brain can convince itself of and what we can kind of, um, you know, say, yeah, wow, this really did the trick. You know, this has helped me. Uh, and, you know, there has been some recent work that suggests that a lot of what you see in terms of people reporting these benefits who are microdosing, that is predicted by before they get started, they're thoughts about you know whether or not this is going to help them so the people who thought yeah this is definitely going to help before they even got started are the ones who later go on and say yeah this is really helping i feel much better um and so that would suggest there's a big element of, of these type of placebo effects in people uh, who are you know uh, having these good experiences microdosing and um you know in these controlled studies when you start to look at you know breaking down what happens with these microdoses versus a placebo under double blind conditions, you don't see a whole lot that looks like it would be helpful. Like you see people reporting more anxiety on their microdose than when they're on placebo. And so you think, well, why would that, you know, why would that be helpful? Um, the other thing is that it can be difficult to microdose. I mean, even the term microdosing is kind of this um, vague nebulous concept. And so people like Jim Badman, who's one of my professors, and a mentor uh, for years of mine, um, who's been one of the big popularizers of microdosing. Um, you know, he kind of talks about it as being, you know, one-tenth of an active dose. And, you know, he and others have, have kind of come up with that. Um, 
but you know what's what's an active dose i mean and, and how much are people taking and when you're taking something like psilocybin mushrooms or lsd um, you know you're often getting stuff from black market and dosing with psilocybin mushrooms precisely can be quite difficult i mean you can get it down to the to the gram level and might you know the milligram level of course using um, scales and stuff but when it comes to the actual composition of what's in there it's hard to hard to tell and same with LSD, you know, it can be hard to say how much you got and, and you know, that you even have LSD unless you're doing some sort of testing on, on those chemicals. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, Chuck Nichols' work does show, you know, these anti-inflammatory um, properties, even at very low doses. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, there is this uh, one paper from uh, Harriet DeWitt's group in the University of Chicago um, showing that there's changes in the um, brain functional connectivity, you know, under placebo and microdose conditions when you compare them. So the, I would say there's a possibility there or something, um, but how it works and, and whether it does or not um, is still unclear. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it does seem like there needs to be a lot more research. And right now it's mostly case studies and individuals claiming, you know, it helps. Um, but yeah, these, you know, these neuroplastic changes seems like it's what differentiates psychedelics from a lot of these other drugs. Um, like specific, specifically, I'm thinking esketamine, you know, you have to go back every two to four weeks to get these recurring doses of it. Um, so, you know, you need to keep stimulating the, these changes going on. Whereas these big doses of psilocybin, I think, you know, it's more long-term um, and that's what, you know, why these substances can be so powerful. Yeah, and that's an exciting and, and great point. You know, even looking at animal models of, um, you know, ketamine versus psilocybin dosing, you know, you're still seeing that there's shorter term changes after ketamine as opposed to after psilocybin. And that's also borne out by what you just mentioned, which is when you administer ketamine or esketamine therapeutically, that people typically need to go back and um, do regular dosing at anywhere from, you know, two to four week intervals to maintain uh, antidepressant response, whereas with psilocybin, you know, we're seeing effects that can last three months, sometimes six months, sometimes longer, uh, and that's that's also exciting and, and um, you know something that we we'll, you know need to study more. Do you see um, a future uh, or in the near future this study opening the doorway to studies with other psychedelics or the other classical psychedelics like LSD, um, mescaline, or even DMT? Oh yeah, totally. Um, you know, there's work being done on all those fronts uh, right now, not just Hopkins, other places. Um, we have a study that we finished here um, with DMT administration, not therapeutic DMT, but just kind of looking at the basic effects of the drug. Um, and I believe they're working on some therapeutic DMT studies over in uh, Europe, uh, maybe in, in London, I'm not sure. I've seen those, but I haven't seen anything in the United States uh, even working with DMT at all, so it's really exciting. Um, I wanted to know what your, um, some people have speculated that maybe endogenous DMT or DMT is responsible for spiritual experiences of all kinds, whether meditational or through religion or however, um, fasting, things like that. What do you uh, make of that? Do you think that that might be a valid hypothesis? Uh, so I'm not like a, you know, molecular biologist. I'm not, you know, so I would say that, uh, take my opinion with a grain of salt, but I do defer to people like Dave Nichols who, who do have a, a real good understanding of the, um, 
the brain science and the chemistry um, behind this. And he has been kind of uh, skeptical about, you know, DMT playing a role in, in some of these types of altered states. Uh, not to say that it's not possible, but just saying that, you know, it's kind of a hypothesis with very limited um, supporting evidence. And so in order to say that, I think we want to see more evidence. Um, but interestingly, what they're doing with, you know, some of the work they're doing with uh, DMT also hinges on its properties of this sigma-1 receptor and um, what they think may be helpful for, um, you know, something like uh, stroke or different types of traumatic brain injury um, and, uh, you know, kind of lessening the impact of those types of, of brain problems. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other exciting area that's kind of just unfolding. Um, there's been some work with therapeutic administration of LSD in the contemporary literature, um, mostly in Switzerland, the birthplace of LSD. Um, but, um, you know, we're working on a trial here at Hopkins and um, there, you know, will be more, I'm sure, that are forthcoming um, using uh, LSD because there's no reason to think LSD would be, um, you know, any less efficacious than psilocybin. Um, you know, there's just differences in, um, I think, some of the cultural baggage around these drugs. And there's, there's a lot of stigma with LSD still in the counterculture. Um, so that, I think, has held work back somewhat. Um, and also there are just logistical con uh, concerns, which is, you know, when we administer psilocybin, it's nice. I get up, uh, you know, I show up the lab at eight, we're dosing at nine, people have their drug effects until about five o'clock and then their spouse or their friend comes and picks them up and takes them home. I can go home and have dinner with my wife. Um, and, you know, we can follow up the next day. With LSD, when they do this work, um, you know, they come, we come in at eight here maybe dose at nine and it's possible we'll be here till nine o'clock or later because this action of the drug goes longer, um, particularly at this high dose end of the spectrum. And so clinically that could take a little more infrastructure, a little more um, you know, work to do, but um, because there's been such a long history and so much great research done with LSD, you know, before the schedule one classification, uh, I absolutely think that it you know, needs to be resurrected. And, you know, it is, it's, it's happening, just not at the rate that you see with psilocybin. Thank you. Uh, that actually leads me to ask, like, with DMT, you know, you could uh, theoretically administer it and someone could be done with their experience, you know, within the hour and be ready to go home. So I wonder about the potential therapeutic uses of it, um, seeing how it could be if it, you could administer it in an even shorter time period than psilocybin. So just one thing to think about is, you know, you're not going to see a lot of medications that are vaporized. And really to get that type of fast acting, short acting effect with DMT, that's one of the main ways you do that. Um, you can also do IV administration. Um, as with ayahuasca, you can do co-administration orally with an MAOI, uh, but then you're going to get something that's much more like a psilocybin experience uh, in the sense that it's going to you know, last several hours. So I think that is a limitation, um, at least in terms of the formulation and pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the drug uh, for now in terms of making it a medicine. Now, you know, there's lots of people who vape cannabis or, um, you know, smoke cannabis and they use it for medical purposes. Um, so I don't think it's off the table, but um, yeah, that is just, it raises the issue. You know, though you mentioned 
yes, this can be a short-acting psychedelic with potential therapeutic properties. Um, you know, from a medical development standpoint, it can also pose those kinds of problems. And same with 5-methoxy, um, which is another real interesting area that I think the field will be, you know, looking more closely at in the coming decade. In Ohio, we have um, cannabis is legal for medical usage, but through vaporization only, you're not allowed to smoke it. So I wonder if that will allow easier avenue for vaporization of some of these drugs because we already have um, vaporization method for cannabis or if that will not really come into play. Yeah, hard to say, um, but you know, it's, it's a consideration in terms of you know, using that as a medication and delivering that as its therapy. Well, my next question for you is mostly about like cultural considerations. So here in the United States, just very largely, do we subscribe to this westernized medical model? And, you know, this isn't the main model for all places uh, around the world. Uh, are you familiar with some other cultures that use psilocybin and kind of what their experiences are with that in kind of a medical setting? So setting? You know, I'm not expert in that type of anthropology and um, where you know, there are people who study use of these different types of psychedelics in different cultures. Um, ayahuasca and psilocybin and uh, even iboga, I think, are great examples of that. Um, and those span sort of continents with iboga, you know, being used um, in, in Africa and ayahuasca being used in South America and psilocybin use being, you know, um, Central and, and North America as well. And even, you know, uh, groups in uh, Central and North America who use, um, mescaline containing cacti like San Pedro or, or peyote. Um, and so those different cultures, you know, to my knowledge, use these substances in, in different ways. Um, you know, there's typically some sort of uh, cultural container around how they're used. Um, often, you know, goes along with what people might call shamanic practices. Um, but yeah, in terms of how that's done, you know, I've never had the um, opportunity to up close and personal kind of witness that or, or uh, you know, partake. And so it's not something I'm as well versed in. Um, but I would say because those cultures have such a long history of using substances like psilocybin, peyote, ayahuasca for, you know, healing and spiritual religious purposes, um, it's important that, you know, we acknowledge that when we do the work that we do at places like Hopkins and other Western medical institutions um, and not kind of sort of take this credit like, oh, we discovered this the way that uh, right. Trump discovered America. Um, there's all these people here already and they've been doing this for some time um, and, you know, kind of have a reciprocal relationship where we can both learn from the ways that they do this, um, you know, in ceremonial uh, settings and also give back to those communities um, where you see huge, you know, ravaging uh, problems with health and mental health. I mean, just here in the U.S., looking at stuff like health disparities and, you know, things like mental health and um, suicide and mortality rates and rates of substance use problems in uh, Native American populations, um, you know, they're struggling hu hugely uh, here in the U.S. And so to be able to go back and hopefully uh, allow them or make sure that they, you know, have uh, both the ability to practice their um, you know, their religious uh, practices that involve psychedelics, and then also give them access to uh, these types of treatments, you know, should they become medically accessible and available, um, so that they, you know, can actually gain the benefits. 
is is a really important thing. And you know, I was actually just finished writing an editorial about this, so um, that should be out soon. But it's you know, how do we um, help the disenfranchised uh, with psychedelic medicine? Because um, you know, we don't want this to become this treatment that just uh, you know the wealthy and the well-to-do have access to, and um, particularly in the climate that we're in, where there is such big problems between racial and ethnic uh, diverse groups and uh, their health, their mental health, and even just things like uh, you know inequity in terms of poverty. So um, it's, it's something to keep an eye on and, and to think more about. Cool, yeah. Um, so my next question was about, um, I guess more like public um, opinion and public thought on psychedelics. Uh, I know in 2018, the FDA classified psilocybin as a breakthrough therapy um, in order to kind of speed up the research and approval of the drug. Um, so, you know, it seems like there's really, uh, you know, the ball is really rolling and we're um, getting into this, but I'm wondering, you know, how can we shift the narrative, narrative uh, surrounding psychedelics and, um, you know, how can we tell these people who are worried about it, um, you know, that they're actually safe and effic uh, very effective. Um, it seems like this, this stigma surrounding it, you know, dates all the way back to the Reagan, Reagan administration and the war on drugs and whatnot. So how can we help, you know, shift this public opinion? Yeah. And actually, you know, a lot of that goes back before Reagan, you know, the, um, Nixon administration was a um, first, you know, to create this this quote unquote war on drugs, and uh, also to put this control controlled substances act into place, um, which put cannabis and all the psychedelics in the U.S. on Schedule One or highly you know restricted classification. Um, and yeah, it's been a long time that uh, there's been that type of stigma around psychedelics. Really, kind of reaching back to the 1960s, um, which is when there was you know, a kind of big outgrowth of uh, recreational use um, that was also associated with the counterculture. Um, and much like today, you know, we're seeing such social upheaval and, you know, such uh, kind of back and forth between these different uh, ends of the spectrum politically and ideologically um, when we're talking about people who are on the more conservative or liberal side, if you want to call it that. Um, you know, that's the same type of stuff that was happening in the 1960s when you're seeing the civil rights movement, um, the women's rights movement. Um, you're seeing the anti-war, you know, anti-Vietnam War uh, demonstrations that were happening um, at that time. You know, in this kind of uh, cultural battle between, uh, you know, capitalism and communism, and all all that stuff that was happening back in those days, um, which made it such a kind of chaotic um, period, but at the same time, you know, such a prolific period in terms of our culture. You know, I see you have a Grateful Dead poster back there. You know, they started in Palo Alto, you know, back in those days when this was happening, the whole Haight-Ashbury scene, you know, and then Woodstock. And, you know, it's an exciting time. And I often lament with my friends when we were growing up in South Florida that, you know, we weren't around to see, you know, these, these people, you know, see uh, groups like the Dead or the Doors or the, you know, the Beatles and be around for that. But, you know, from a scientific standpoint, this is almost like we're back to that type of, of um, you know, level of excitement in terms of what's developing here with the psychedelic research. Um, and I think culturally, you know, again, you're seeing all this back and forth and things are pretty, uh, you know, 
chaotic nowadays as well. I mean, just looking at the politics in, in the US, for instance. Uh, and so in terms of how do we kind of change the narrative around these substances and uh, you know, what people think about them and their perceptions about safety and risk, you know, the main thing that I think is important in what we've been doing is just doing good science um, and making sure that those results get out there um, and not in a sensationalistic manner, but in an even-handed way uh, so that when we talk about things, we don't just give people the impression that these are perfectly safe and that nobody ever has any problems and that they solve all your problems, they'll pay your bills and make sure that, you know, you have a great relationship with all your family and so forth. I mean, it's really, and that's the, pro, you know, I think part of the problem, um, you know, between people who are, you know, no way psychedelics versus people who are kind of all the way, you know, you might think of them as um, zealots, you know, everybody should take these. Um, you know, I think it's important to kind of strike a balance and say, yes, these can be used safely and effectively in medical settings. Um, yes, these have had a long history of, you know, traditional use in indigenous cultures. Um, and yes, they have risks and we, you know, understand what those are and we're working to mitigate those when we administer them. Uh, and, you know, they may not help everyone. I mean, even in our studies with depression and with other types of, um, you know, conditions, you know, you're always seeing people who don't get benefits and even people who have very difficult experiences with the high dose range. Uh, and, you know, that's something that I think it's important to be forthright about and just say, you know, we're not painting this rosy picture. We're putting everything on the table, um, you know, including the issues that can come along with this and uh, the positives. And so that's really where I think it's important, um, both, uh, you know, presenting this work fairly and accurately, uh, making sure that the media is doing that when they are writing about this type of thing. Um, and then, you know, lots of education and outreach, which, um, you know, I think a lot of our team and, and scientists in general spend a lot of time trying to go out and, you know, talk to the community and not just preach to the choir, which I think is easy if we want to go to a MAPS, you know, conference and talk to the people in attendance, they're typically going to be fans. Um, but, you know, going to um, places where you may not be as, you know, where people might be a little more skeptical and uh, presenting a uh, you know, fair and balanced representation of the, the work. Um, and yeah, you know, really being uh, honest about what, you know, where we're at, what the shortcomings are um, and, and so forth. Yeah, it was, um, you know, this past election cycle is just decriminalized in Colorado, psilocybin was. So I'm very hopeful and, um, you know, I think the time is soon. Yeah, and you know, I think that is also has got its own kind of set of issues that come along with this these decriminalization movements. I think you know more exciting than even the, the, the decriminalization of you know medical use of psilocybin in Oregon was decriminalization of all drugs, because if you just come along and say, okay, we're going to decriminalize these drugs that we like to use, um, but the drugs that y'all like to use, now you're still going to be put in jail, fine, or whatever. Um, you know that continues to create these um, health disparities and these different uh, types of problems in terms of incarceration for people who use certain substances. So when you're seeing, okay, across the board, if you're you know in possession of heroin, if you're in possession of methamphetamine, if you're in possession of cocaine, um, you know we're not going to put you in jail. Uh, maybe we're gonna to try to direct you toward treatment services if this looks like to, 
you know, it could be a problem. Um, you know, I think to me that's very exciting because it can start to even the playing field somewhat. Um, and, you know, our work here is really geared towards um, FDA approval, which would be federal level, um, you know, across all 50 states and hopefully, you know, um, have impacts on other places in the world as well. I actually wanted to know what you think uh, the likelihood is that soon there'll be studies involving psilocybin or psychedelics that aren't just in a necessarily like a clinical setting for things like depression or addiction, but where you could test them for things like creativity and their effect on creativity or just general mood. Yeah, and we've been doing work like that with healthy volunteers here, and we're going to continue to do that um, here at Hopkins and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, one of the I think interesting areas that Jim Fadiman was working on at Stanford back in the 60s and that, you know, we're continuing to work on here is, um, you know, not that clinical uh, kind of purpose, which is specifically to treat a condition, but really for what they call the betterment of well people. So if you don't have anything, quote unquote, wrong with you, if you have no, you know, mental health conditions that you're struggling with, um, but you want to kind of uh, amp things up or, you know, improve your performance in some way, um, then there's a very real possibility that psychedelics could be useful in that sense as well. And so one of the coolest studies I think the Hopkins uh, group has published uh, was uh, in 2017 uh, in just, you know, uh, what we call healthy volunteers. So people with no problems uh, that they came in for, um, they really just wanted to learn meditation. And then we um, showed them a sort of simple meditation program we wanted them to do at home on their own and then gave them either high dose psilocybin, very low like placebo-like dose of psilocybin or high dose psilocybin with a, kind of a extra social support where there were these additional um, group meetings that people were able to talk about their sessions and their meditation practice. And you know what we found there is that you're getting um, these improvements in, uh, or these increases in spirituality in life meaning and purpose and um, forgiveness, you know, in the groups who are getting um, the high dose psilocybin and even more so in the groups who are getting the psilocybin with the extra social support. Um, so, you know, I think that starts to cross the line from this medical model of, of administration for specific health conditions to more of, uh, you know, what you might consider a model for just sort of, uh, you know, spiritual use or um, for existential use uh, of, of people in general, just who want to explore themselves and learn more about uh, the, you know, themselves and, and how they can better themselves in some ways, which goes hand in hand with something like a meditation practice, which you know, is really geared towards kind of getting a better sense of who we are and um, learning more about ourselves. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's a great, I think, and, you know, we'll see more and more of that as well as, as we go forward, because, you know, treating uh, health conditions is one thing, but, um, you know, helping people get in touch with themselves in ways, uh, whether you want to call it spiritually or existentially, or, you know, grapple with things like creative problem solving, um, or even get more in touch with nature, which is a paper I'm working on now, we're seeing these kind of increases in nature uh, connectedness after psychedelic administration. In, you know, in our smokers, these weren't people that we were prompting to, you know, be more pro-nature. These are people who are trying to get to quit. Um, and so the drug seems to have this type of uh, effect that it, 
I think can have benefits across the board and a lot of big domains that are not just these specific, um, you know, depression, addiction, et cetera. I mean, that's generally one of the things when people tell me about their psychedelic experiences. I, outside of the academic setting, I try, try to ask everyone about it and talk to them about it. And when people report to me about their experiences with mushrooms specifically, they tend to tell me, you know, they feel connection with nature. It made them want to start hiking more or made them want to pick up a hobby like kayaking or something. And, you know, these are people who that wasn't even why they went into it. You know, oftentimes they took it at a party or they and sometimes they didn't even have a positive experience on mushrooms. They had a really rough, challenging experience. But uh, then they tend to come back and tell me, you know, I love hiking now. I'm just so into nature ever since then. And that's just a really it's just an interesting thing. Yeah, no, it's I agree with you. And particularly, you know, in light of the current environmental issues that we're facing as a species, which are existential issues in terms of like survival of the species and other species. Um, you know, it could also have real uh, significant benefits for, for humans to kind of get on the same page about, you know, tackling some of those issues. And psychedelics could be useful tools for that. I think so. And then especially when you look at the precedent that they have in shamanic cultures, where they directly say that they use them to get their contact with nature. And, you know, oftentimes the leaders of these cultures, tribal leaders will tell us that that's where we've severed our connection, you know, that we don't administer psychedelics anymore in our culture generally and you know we look and we have a lot of environmental destruction so i, I just see a, a possible pathway in the future definitely yeah so mo moving forward so so basically right now is, is kind of like efficacy um kind of understanding underpinnings and and kind of going in that direction uh, what do you see as some of the the most important questions uh for you and your group over the next five years so so say that you continue on and you kind of you know show support for your hypotheses uh where do you think this can go in like five or ten years what would be the direction um, I think there's a few important directions, uh, but one of them is just getting it to that place where if the data show they're safe and efficacious treatments for mental health conditions, then that can lay the groundwork for changing the regulatory status from Schedule 1 to something else, where that would then mean doctors would be able to prescribe them in certain settings uh, and that people would have access to them medically. Um, I think that's, you know, for me, that's the main thing that all the work that I'm doing right now is focused on, because if we can get it to that point, then that just really shifts the way that um, culture treats psychedelics and then the accessibility. And you won't believe the number of grandmas and, you know, people who are not recreational drug users, um, at least not the type you normally would think, you know, are so interested in what we're doing. And it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, but they're not able to access these like at a, you know, rec, you know in a recreational setting, they don't have, you know, a, a hookup. Uh, and they probably wouldn't feel comfortable if they did, you know. Um, but if you tell them all of a sudden, hey, you can go to a doctor and you can go to a place where it's safe and they'll give you this type of a, a substance for medical treatment or for, you know, these types of health purposes, um, you know, for them to be able to get access to this I think is huge and it's a lot of people because right now even though there's growing numbers of people who are using psychedelics it's still confined to a relatively small proportion of the population and it's mostly young white males who we see using 
uh, psychedelics. And there's, you know, lots of cultural reasons for that. But, um, you know, I think opening the doors to seeing uh, people access these medically will be big help uh, for public health because, you know, we need new treatments for depression. We need new treatments for addiction. And then, you know, the way that that's going to kind of snowball and impact culture down the line, um, I don't know how that will have, how that will kind of unfold, but uh, I think it will have big impacts on what we were just talking about, the way people worry, think about nature, the way think of, people think about society at large. Um, you know, so that's my main kind of thrust right now. Um, but then for the science, scientist side, you know, I think a lot of what we're focused on is finding other conditions where we might be able to use these, figuring out how best to apply them. We've been doing it pretty much the same um, since the beginning of, you know, the research with psilocybin here at Hopkins in 2000. And a lot of that goes back to what was being done in the 1960s. But there's so much other stuff that we could potentially throw in there with that, that maybe would improve the, you know, the administration. I'm working on, you know, using virtual reality in conjunction with psychedelics to enhance treatment. Um, are there particular types of, um, you know, talk therapies that are better or worse uh, to combine with psychedelics and for specific conditions? Looking at all these other conditions that we're starting to look at, like, you know, um, Alzheimer's and, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, understanding the mechanisms better, um, both in the brain and, you know, at the, the kind of cellular level and also at the psychological level. Um, so those are, you know, I think the big ones. And, and also, um, you know, as we discussed, you know, figuring out how to use these, not necessarily in a medical context, but more for these types of, uh, you know, uh, improvements in overall well-being and connectedness and perhaps spirituality. Um, you know, that's also exciting and, and another frontier for this work to kind of move towards in the next decade, I would say. Well, I mean, what, what a great frontier and place to be right now, pushing that forward. So <clears throat> I look forward to watching this progress over the years, and I'm going to continue to do this show for a long time. And I think it would just be fantastic to have you on the show another time, uh, you know, after, after a few more years or or however long, just to, just to catch up and say, say like, hey, so what happened with the Alzheimer's study? What, what happened with these other studies that, that are going on right now? And, you know, what, what's really cool about uh, your line of research is that it gets well publicized. So, so say that you, you put forth your data, like, I'm, I'm going to know about it. You know, there, there's some there's some subfields where probably I won't, but this is one where I'm definitely uh, keeping up and interested. So thank you so much for coming on the show and kind of letting us know what's going on right now in the field and, and where it's heading. And I know that our listeners are going to find this very valuable. Absolutely. I, you know, I appreciate uh, having you having me on. I'll be happy to come back and do this again in the future. Uh, I'll put you in touch with other people in the field. There's there's lots of people doing incredible work and uh, who know way more than I do about certain areas that you know, I have a very rudimentary understanding of. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just enjoy chatting with you all today. Awesome. And, and thanks so much to the co-hosts too, uh, Sam and Austin. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it very much. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. This has been great. All right. You heard it here first, the Brain Health Podcast.